Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is powered by ICP Analysis. What's in your water? Hey, Reef Builders. Welcome to episode number 83 of the Reef Therapy Podcast. Today, we'll have a little therapy session. I'm joined by Raj and uh, also a special guest. We're going to dive into some microbiology tonight with our special guest, Salem Clemens. Salem is currently a senior pursuing a degree in molecular biology, biotech, uh, with a minor in chemistry. And for the last two years, he's been researching coral pathogens and holobiont associated signal transduction <laughs> pathways. Uh, he's been in the hobby for about a decade and farms coral, pods, phyto. Additionally, he's got a couple maintenance accounts and uh, offers remote consultation to assist with interpreting ICP and aquabiomics data, which is kind of a big deal, especially when it comes to ICP stuff. Nobody knows what they're looking at really off the bat. And you kind of get scared there for a second. You're like, why is that low? Why is that high? Uh, that's cool. That's uh, I don't know anybody else that consults on ICP stuff. So that's, that's uh, pretty awesome. Um, we always start each episode with talking about what's going on in our reefing world. So I'll let, I'll let our guest take the floor tonight. Anything you're struggling with any new projects, feel free to get any pent up frustrations out. You are in a safe space, Salem. <laughs> yeah, definitely some uh, issues. A lot of my clients tanks. So uh, I took over a new account recently and nitrates, phosphates, higher than the Hannah checkers could register. So I was like, okay, this is a problem. Added a fuge, did a bunch of huge water changes, carbon dosed after two months, still that high. I was like, this is weird. So finally, I remember Taras was talking about using Fido as a nutrient export tool. So you would add a strain that could absorb uh, excess phosphates, for instance, let it run, then turn the skimmer on and really just take it out. So I added about two gallons of Fido to a 400 gallon system let it run for like four hours, turn the skimmer back on. Everything was perfect. Like wow. one time I was like, wow, okay, that's crazy. Now it's just like on track, like pulled all the phosphates out of the rock. Didn't have to use lanthanum or anything. It was pretty cool. That's an interesting that's awesome. way to, uh, to do that. Uh, and it seems very natural as well. <laughs> like you said, no lanthanum needed. So <laughs> yeah, I was like, man, how am I going to get down? 1.00 phosphates like this is crazy the hand checker was just flashing it couldn't even detect <laughs> how high it was so that was a struggle um my own personal tanks i have been pursuing some new projects of adding some biodiversity so this is something i'll probably have i guess data about maybe like in a year because it just takes so long to send some stuff off but me and one of my friends um seth with a1a aquatics have both been like thinking okay, are there any commercial products that currently exist that could shift someone's microbiome to being more favorable? So we're testing quite a few different things and have as, as a controlled setting as we can, having uh, aquabiomics before and after. So that's something with my own personal tanks I've been toying with. That's cool. That's cool. Any, uh, any projects at, at school that are going on right now that uh, you're excited about? Uh, my current research is uh, really picking up some pace. I'd say about two years now. So it's at the stage where all the fun's happening. So getting a lot of data that looks very promising, but not finished yet. So I think a lot of people who are listening or watching right now are like, who's this kid? And uh, <laughs> what's, he, what's he doing on the podcast? So, and, and honestly, I don't, I I kind of dabbled in the anthropology side in college, so it really wasn't 
I didn't really get a whole lot of the, the bio in there. I was always really, really fascinated by science, wanted to do bio uh, in, in college, but ended up going mass communications, and now I'm in radio. So I guess that all kind of worked out. But um, I don't know of too many people that are that are interested in the the biology of corals you know and especially you're in the midwest which is even weirder right so you're not even on a coast so what what got you into that what started that for you um like many things in life it all started as i was a kid so my parents took me to florida one summer and they wanted some alone time so they dropped me off at this like kids camp yeah. thing and uh ended up being though that a marine biologist read like ran this thing it's called uh the sea school it's at sanibel island florida so he took us out and like it was like a huge group of kids that similar situation and he actually helped us like you know we helped him collect field data and stuff he was studying sand dollars at the time and then um, he just kind of taught us about the whole ecosystem like it was like more mangroves and stuff around there but they had a bunch of fish tanks in there so i was maybe seven or eight at the time we came back and i was like this is pretty cool i want to get a fish tank so saved up the allowance and there was a deal on craigslist and they had a i was doing freshwater at the time they had a 75 gallon freshwater tank with a little 10 gallon like bio cube and i was like all right time to roll and then it kind of just uh you know i was always passionate about science and it's continued since then what was that first tank like what was the, what, what did you stock in it so it was like already set up. It was someone just like they had to move or something. I, I don't think it was a bio cube. It was like a custom made acrylic tank or something. So it had like a pair of clowns in it, no coral, just a trillion Majanos, which I thought were cool at the time. <laughs> so I kept the Majanos and then I got, you know, like this standard had like a Kenya tree, uh, yeah. candy canes. I went to an LFS that was um, not in business anymore and they had a Dendro Nephthia. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. So I threw that in there obviously nice. killed it um then i had like a bunch of hammers and stuff so that was kind of my first tank it was a lot of fun gotcha yeah i so was gonna say was that Ken if kenya tree wasn't a part of that then <laughs> was that roland mcmurphy that you were doing the camp with by chance um, do you remember his name his name was uh bruce i don't remember his bruce. last name that i think he moved roland. yeah i think he moved to california um in recent years okay. I, really forgot his last name. I think he was like an ichthyologist with like a focus on ecology or something like that. I got it. Well, well, there's the National Shell Museum there on Sanibel Island. And it's a it worked on a big project with Tenji there uh, where we built out that whole aquarium and it was an amazing facility. And it was started by a shell collector. Hmm. And he kind of started, the, he funded it back in the um, early 80s, I believe. And his name was Roland. So that would have just been a really cool coincidence that he did that. And the aquarium, unfortunately, is closed. They closed right after they opened because the hurricane that came through totally wiped it out. So they didn't, it's an amazing facility, and they didn't even get to have that flood of guests in their brand new um, immaculate aquarium because of the hurricane. So, yeah, that hurricane really devastated the island. Like, there's a lot of businesses that are just, not opening again because yeah my family would go there you know every few years and like rent the same house and stuff so it was a nice childhood spot that seems forever changed unfortunately 
Oh, did, uh, See, that that sounds cool. I, I had memories of just sleeping in the car at that uh, <laughs> thing, location. So. <laughs> we didn't have the, the renting of houses or hotels. You didn't go to Disney World every year, Raj? <laughs> no, not so much. <laughs> uh, I, who was talking about that? I feel like, I don't know if it was a conversation that you and I were having at, at like a show, Raj, or if Mark had mentioned that. Does that camp still run Salem? Do you know if they're still taking kids and doing that whole thing? Yeah, I think it's still an active thing. But I, I think that, yeah, the Bruce guy, he was the head guy. I think he still owns it, but someone else operates it now because he, he moved. But yeah, I believe it's still a thing, yeah. Yeah, I just feel like that's sometimes cool. that's the that's the little thing that, like, it, like we, talk, we took my kids to their first Cardinals game a couple weeks ago, and now Leo, my six-year-old, wants to do Little League next year. And it's like the the mind is so spongy at that age. So it's yeah. like whatever you kind of introduce to them, if it clicks, it can go somewhere. And I think that's uh, you know that's really cool. Maybe maybe my son will someday, or my daughter will be like, yeah, I'm a I'm an ichthyologist, or you know, marine <laughs> marine biology, or you know, something cool like that. Uh, but they come down here in the basement and they just want to name the fish. So we're at that stage right now. <laughs> it's a good stage. Yeah, it is a good stage. Raj, uh, how's the uh, how's the office tank coming along or not coming along, as it were? Oh, it's it's coming along. It's nice. definitely coming along. You know, sump is in production, um, and I was spending this whole week working on lighting and uh, going through all the different options. You know, I've had my dilemma of we're right at that stage of the year where new products are going to launch, and I don't want to buy into a product, and then like the next week, the new one is out. Um, but I also wanted it to look cool. So I'm, I'm going to kind of make my own fixture, but use, uh, lighting from the industry. And I was talking to, uh, after talking to Mike Sensky, you know, we we're talking about lighting and just the different brands and he brought up AI and I have never, ever used an aqua illuminations light. And I don't know why, but it's just never happened. And I think I've used damn near every other brand. So I want to use AI on this reef and see, just check it out and really run it through the gamut and see what I can do with it or what they're capable of doing. Cause I, I like the look, they, they're sleek. I, the branding is cool. You know, the logo is, is that clean minimalistic look. I know that's dumb to consider the light <laughs> because of that, but it's what I do. Um, so that's kind of really where I'm leaning is to go with with ai on this one but like hydras or blades or primes not or the what? blades yeah that the hydro what is it the hydro 32 bigger, 64s yeah 64 i think that was the big one yeah so working with them right now to just kind of spec that out to see what i would need um and then i was looking at commercial like chandelier type fixtures to see if it was something i could adapt in to just give it a better aesthetic look doesn't look like a normal reef tank you know just hide the lighting because it's going to be yeah open top and you know super why easy. why like make it. it easy when you can super complicate the process <laughs> <laughs> so i am in the mode of super complicating the process and taking on way more work than it should be just to get some lights on my reef but yeah that's where we're at yeah that's awesome. I uh, I don't know if it was because it was one of the first lights that I used when I got into the hobby, uh, the AIs. 
uh, I think it was the Souls. Uh, I forget which light it was, but I just remember after kind of adapting and going to the HD, uh, the Prime HDs, and the interface that they have for the phones, it's just it's awesome. And I've used a handful of those interfaces at this point, and a handful of those apps at this point, and I just I still I love their app. I don't, it's just, it's just like one of those easy to use, you know, user-friendly. Uh, and I think sometimes nowadays these lighting companies will oversimplify it to the point where it's like, I don't have a whole lot of that control anymore. Um, but you know, there are a lot of new hobbyists and I know that a lot of the, the, the products are kind of geared toward the new hobbyists because there are so many all the time getting in, getting out, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like the AI interface, uh, the apps. Well, that's that good. I, yeah. I, I, I need it to be user-friendly because I, I really hate the overcomplicated lighting apps and all the features and whatnot. I'm just old school with it. I want the light to turn on and turn off, you know, so <laughs> tweaking the color is kind of cool. I'll take that. And just being able to ramp it up and ramp it down. So you get that sunrise and sunset effect. So all that's cool, but everything else I could do without. I don't need lightning storms or clouds or <laughs> just all the other random doodads that that you know that you can get with some of these apps. And I could just super do without any of that stuff. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I get that. No lightning that storms. Sure. <laughs> no. <man>. <laughs> Fish <laughs> are like what? <laughs> In, in my neighborhood, we are very anti-lightning storms right now. It's, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, a couple months back, um, friend's house got hit and it, his house burned down. And I was talking to him the other day. And this, this sort of relates to what we're, you know, reef tanks now. But um, just going through the process of obviously the emotional toll that it took. But now, just after that happens what's the process you know what does he go through as far as insurance and getting the house rebuilt and renting a new house and replacing all your stuff i mean he's a lot they lost everything right all their clothes all their just absolutely everything is gone and you remember how we had this flood of all these stores that were burning down and people's tanks and houses were having fires like all in this one spurt and i really started thinking about that because one of the lessons that uh, uh, that Garrett was talking about was we're mostly underinsured and to make sure that we're overinsured on our houses is our tendency when we're shopping for insurance is we give our insurance agent the details here's my address and this is about how much stuff I have and then you shop the price and we assume that every policy is roughly about the same but it's not and you know, for very little money, you can get more coverage. And that more coverage can really bail you out because we've seen what housing values have done, right? You, you buy a house for X amount and in 10 years, it's gone up exponentially. Well, if your policy is tied to that old value and it's not really updated and giving you full replacement value and taking care of where they house you, you can be in a world of hurt. Like they're not going to fully pay for that re new house and they're not going to put you up in a in the area that you need to live in or that you're used to living in or the type of house that you're living in. So there's so many other factors that we really should pay attention to. And 
you know, with a reef tank, there's a lot that can happen. Fire, if the tank breaks and floods, either way, it's putting you out of your home. We need to make sure that we have adequate coverage. And I've got a call scheduled with my agent really to focus on more of the water side of things. Like what happens if your tank breaks? What kind of coverages should we be having? Is there's not really an aquarium line item that you can put in your policy. So, and you don't ever want to use the word flood when talking to your insurance company. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like I want to get from them what the right thing is to do and what the right thing is to say, should the worst happen. I just feel like at this point I need to put up like a 1-800 number because you're like all of a sudden an insurance agent and I should call you for, you know, the upgrade in my insurance policies. They may be as, as deep as I'm diving into this stuff. Do you also sell life, life insurance as well? No, but I I'm will getting... sell you an extended warranty on your car. I've been meaning to talk to you about that. Dang it. Now it's solar. Now, now I get like nonstop calls about solar. Oh, wow. Um, are you the homeowner? Is your power bill over $100 a month? Uh, yes. It's <laughs> silly. As <laughs> reefers, we don't admit to what our power bills <laughs> yeah. are. Okay, That's the cardinal yeah. sin. Don't talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, getting to the Red Sea behind me. Uh, it has been filled for going on two and a half, three weeks now, uh, which is awesome. Uh, not too much to report about it. We're kind of in the same situation, just kind of in the waiting game. I'm, uh, I was asked what my canary is going to be and I don't know. I have not decided on what that will be. Uh, obviously I'm going to test and make sure that everything is good for the canary to go in. Um, but I, uh, I don't know what that's going to be right now. Lots of cord management still. So I had a bit of a tight situation where I had to get everything running and salt water in and everything up and running for the live sand to be introduced to the tank. So the cord situation is a little messy right now. Um, still, but, uh, I don't Salem and I, we, we kind of went back and forth on that whole, like, should I do live rock? Should I do live sand? Should I do dry rock? And, you know, kind of after reading the article and, you know, not want and wanting to go against Raj, I uh, decided to go with you know some form of life in my tank to start with, and it was fun. Uh, I didn't notice anything crazy. I did we did we talk? I don't know if we talked about this last time, but I got a um, a really tiny little serpent star. Uh, there's a very very tiny crab, but we, I even I threw it to like the best crustacean guys in the business and they, they didn't know what it was. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he's dead. There's no food in the tank for him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's, there's nothing for him. Uh, and yeah, and that was, that was pretty much it, but it was, it was kind of cool to see. And they, they tossed in a mangrove pod for me too. So I've got that thing. I'm a, I'm, I've got a mangrove in my care now, which is fun. So you, you started your tank by killing a whole bunch of aquatic life. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> Good. Okay. Just making sure that's, that we're clear. <laughs> There's bacteria in there. Okay. Uh-huh. It, okay. It's, 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 it's good. It's, it's good to go. Yeah. Um, I did ship off a couple of water samples. Um, one of them to Aquabiomics. I reached out to them initially because i wanted to try their live sand and they were they had been out for some time 
And so I went with Tampa Bay saltwater and got some of that instead. In the meantime, I had talked to the team at Aquabiomics and they're like, Hey, we want to send you a test. And I was like, that's great. I was going to get one anyway, because I just kind of want a baseline. Just want to see what the tank, where the tank is at right now. And you know, where in three months will be, where in six months will be. I think that data is cool to have. Um, and also shipped off a sample to ICP analysis, which is a sponsor of this podcast. Um, you know, after being there and after having gone there while we were in Denver, just seeing the process, it's, it's so clean what they do and easy to read. And again, I wanted a good baseline and, you know, they test 50 elements down to parts per trillion and it's so quick. And I think that that's the thing that I love most about ICP analysis. And I've done many tests there is that once they get it, as soon as they can test it, you, you have the results. Like it's, it's, it's almost instantaneous, you know, once they have gotten that data logged in and, and they can just ping it to your app and boom, you're good to go. Um, but I think yeah, again, that's... it's just, uh, it's about having the data, you know, and I think that that's just, that's what I wanted. I've never done that very well on any other tanks that I've started. And so I just wanted to kind of get that right off the bat. Yeah. I love, I love data. I love that, you know, and I love the speed cause I'm so impatient with that. And once I send off that sample, I want it back now. And ICP analysis being local helps with that. You know, they can get it to you pretty quick. I think what did Sanjay yeah. uh, show that they had a, what a three day turnaround, including the time that like from the day that he mailed it off to the day yeah. he got his results back. That's pretty quick. Yeah. And you know, while we can be patient as reefers and, and many things, I think that that's one aspect that is hard to wait for, especially if you've got some stuff going on that you're observing in your tank at the moment, you want answers now. Um, but yeah, I think ICP analysis does a good job. I'll leave a link in the comment section. I always put that link in the uh, description of the YouTube videos. So you can check that out there if you want to grab an ICP analysis test. But other than that, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm kind of waiting. What do you think my canary should be? What do you think the first coral or fish should be in this tank? Any Not opinions? a damsel. <laughs> not a damsel. <laughs> Probably not a damsel. Yeah. <laughs> Something that you want to keep in there forever. Yeah. Yeah. Cause usually if you put something in there that you don't really want, you'll never be able to catch it and pull it back out unless you tear the whole tank down. That's my experience anyway. Yeah. I did that with domino damsels. I was like, oh, this will be cool. I'll throw them in there. <laughs> and they stayed in there and forever and ever. And they were just taunting me. Yeah. Straight up jerks to everybody as well. They I'm were. Sure. Yeah, they were. I, uh, I have three sets of clownfish and each have kind of special meaning to me. And I don't know if those, I mean, if you're going to put in a, a more non-aggressive or territorial fish, I feel like the clownfish is kind of that way to an extent. Um, I still haven't really weighed and measured what that fish list is going to look like yet. I had this wild idea of just putting gold and yellow fish in there for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it was a weird one. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what that's going to be. So we'll see. Do you know what I'm your like grail fish is going to be in that tank? No, no, I don't. Mm. The, uh, the LFS nearby has had an interrupt this angel for the past like year and a half, two years. And that thing is the fattest little angel fish you've ever seen <laughs> in your life. 
Now, mind you, it's been in a reef tank at the LFS, and he says he he does pretty well without like with not nipping corals. And I kind of want this tank to end up being SPS heavy. Um, wow, that's the risk you take, right, for the beautiful angelfish, I guess. That's but. It. Uh, I also am going to need $3,500, Raj. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, audio cut out. You know, the internet sometimes is really bad. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably one of my, one of my, one of my grail fish for sure. That and the king eye. I feel like those two are in the emperor. They're all angel fish. Damn it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you might notice in the, if you're watching on YouTube, you might see this other uh, tank back here that I moved into place. This is that four foot tide line that I've been talking about for literally a year and a half. And that beautiful aquascape is from Kevin Berta. So um, that's the one that he wanted me to just keep in that tank because it was made for that tank. But that, that's just an all in one, you know? I don't know what I'm, I think. I think I might make that, I think, leathers, I think. But we'll see. Doubt. We'll see how that goes. Super underrated. Yeah. It is very underrated. I think it'd be cool if it was lit with like, you know, just your typical white light leather tank. You know, you can actually appreciate your, you know, your, your pink leathers and, uh, the like blue suspicularia, even though it's not called that anymore, but like all those, <laughs> all those leathers that kind of blend in with blue light now pop a lot more in the white, the, um, uh, what's the, the pink nephthias and, you know, things like that. I just, I, I love those those kinds of tanks. I don't know if the NSA Aquascape will lend itself to that kind of a tank, but sure it will. Corals will okay. grow in and do what they do and it'll look cool. Yeah. 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 For sure. Well, let's get I to, just doubt uh, you're actually going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Put water in it. Yeah. That's probably a good doubt to have. <laughs> I mean, might as well just go two years at this point. Uh, but let's get to some of the questions I've got for Salem, the star of the show here, our guest tonight. Um, I want to start at square one with you, and I'm just going to guess that a lot of hobbyists are unaware of what a coral holobiont is. Can you describe that? Yeah, so it's something of a new concept in terms of actual like scientific literature. So typically, hobbyists or most people will view the coral as, you know, you got colonial animal, maybe it has zooxanthellae. Maybe it doesn't if it's non-photosynthetic, but it's like a colonial animal. So the scientific literature is saying now, forget that, it is a meta-organism. So instead of just being a singular animal that exists as an entity, it is a ecosystem in and of itself. So that ecosystem composes, you know, the coral animal, zooxanthellae, any of the bacteria, bacteriophages, which are viruses, there's fungi, there's endolithic algae to live in the skeleton, there's uh, protozoans of various types, basically, and then archaea. So all domains of life encompass and live within the coral and have a role. It's almost like a microbial city of sorts. So, I mean, a lot of the data nowadays shows that you take out one species, coral dies, you add one species, coral dies. So it's this very complex living biological system that is maintained by its members. Yeah. I, th I think that that is such a cool thing to like, it's all encompassing within this coral. I don't know. I just, I, in reading your article and you said that like, this is accepted in science or this is kind of what we talk about on the science level, but it's not so much talked about in the hobby. Right. Well, isn't, isn't that just kind of like what all life is? I mean, if you take it a, 
take example us, a human, right? We have bacteria. We have all kinds of different pathogens. We have all, all these critters that are living on us and in us. And that seems exactly what you're saying and what the coral is. Yeah, that's kind of the, you know, the hot topic in biology right now and most of the biological sciences. So since next generation genome sequencing has advanced so much in the last 10 years, and we see this with aquabiomics, that's an example of next gen sequencing. So I guess I'll talk about kind of the history of genetic sequencing really quick here. Previously, it used to be, um, I know uh, X organism is in this sample. I now have to have a specific tool to find that organism. It was one thing at a time. Now, because technology's advanced, there's machine learning, there's extremely advanced automation, chips are crazy, so just the hardware and the software are both there to handle a higher throughput of samples. You can send in your water sample, and then you get every single microbial entity in that water column and the concentration of them. So that's called metabarcoding or metagenomics. So because we now have this to analyze living systems, biologists are kind of like, ah, this isn't just simply an organism, but rather every biological system is just a smaller eco ecosystem, like a microcosm and a macrocosm of a bigger ecosystem. But yeah, that's, that's, you know, kind of everything is now being seen as that. So human medicine is advancing quite a bit. Um, there's dozens and dozens of probiotics that are found like daily, like Pfizer's invested a lot of money into it. If that tells you anything. Wow. Okay. That is interesting. I, I, stock still sucks. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Until they make a breakthrough with uh, palytoxin, and then there's there a whole go. new. There you go. Yeah. Um, so you had mentioned machine learning, and I know that AI and all of that is a very hot topic right now. How I, I actually said this to my co-host the other day, and I don't know if this is just me aging, but I said the words that I feel like my parents said to me when the internet was getting uh, huge, where it was like, I just feel like everything's moving too fast right now for me to kind of keep up with it. Do, are you guys talking about that in classes? Are you talking about that and using that on a daily basis as more of a tool than anything? So yeah, in classes it's become a problem. So in the humanities classes, if you have an essay, you just ask chat GP or chat GPT to write it. Like a lot of people do that. So there's a very large problem with uh, plagiarism right now in college. So teachers have got, uh, they've had to come up very fast with creative ways to circumvent people trying to just cheat that way. So a lot of the tests have changed in structure. It's uh, it's now like, I just asked chat GPT this prompt and it had this to say, how would you reflect on that? And then there's also now like the, you know, open AI has came out with plagiarism tools to check if something has been written or written that way. Um, but yeah, in terms of the actual biological sciences and applicability, I went to a science conference um, last spring or this spring, and there was a couple of people talking about new ways to categorize species very rapidly. So it was a guy that studied uh, tardigrades, like uh, uh, water bears. Yeah. So he guys. he was like some 80-year-old guy. He had like a tardigrade tie. tie. I guess he's like taxonomized 90% <laughs> of the tardigrades out there. He lives in Kansas in the middle of nowhere. So he was talking about how he automated the whole process of finding them. So they had a drone that would fly up to the tops of trees, collect lichen. Then they would go and process it with some automated machine to put them on a microscope slide. And then he had a bunch of computer science students then go and pro program some machine learning software to then look at the microscope image and taxonomize it based on morphology. So it was just automated tardigrade collection, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that where it takes 
the busy work out of things, um, it's really good to get ideas. So sometimes if I'm stuck on research or anything, I'll just think of like really outlandish like scenario. Be like, what do you think, ChatGPT? And it'll throw me back an article. I'm like, hmm. And then I can go read that. And then it kind of gets myself thinking. But in terms of personal views, Terminator is probably going to happen. I'm pretty scared. (laughs) But I can't change it. So I just kind of see it as YOLO. I guess I'll use it to my advantage while I can and uh, enjoy the AI-generated Drake songs and stuff. So Yeah. Yeah. I, I I swear moving to a cabin in the middle of Montana feels like the the play at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, was that, uh, what was that M. Night Shyamalan movie, The, the Village? Do you guys remember that? Yeah. Where they're closed <laughs> off from society. That sounds pretty spectacular right now. Yeah. It doesn't seem yeah. too bad. Yeah, things are pretty scary. Singularity will probably be reached. Every moment that I am like, God, I should really stop watching TikTok and Instagram and put my phone <laughs> down. I'm like... I'm walking through the house. I'm like, I'm carrying buckets of RO to my tanks and flipping through TikTok. I'm like, this is an issue. This is yeah. a problem. Ugh. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. And if you're my judging me for it. attention span's gone. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. gone. Well, you know, current research is showing now that attention spans are limited to eight seconds. Eight seconds. That is nothing. I mean, it's a long time for Remy. You go three times <laughs> that amount of time. But eight seconds is, you know, if that's that, that's your attention span. I mean, that if you're providing any sort of content or writing anything or movies or whatever it is, that hook has to appear in that first eight seconds to get you. Otherwise, yeah. people have moved on. And what's troubling about that is, uh, you know, any sort of scientific writing or there's no hook in eight seconds, you know, you really have to be dedicated to that. So what happens to any sort of publications like that? Like, you know, does society slowly drift away and then we're feeding our plants? Um, what the, what the hell is that? Uh, damn it. Oh, I can't uh, think of the drink thing. Yeah. It's soylent. it's mountain dew because they love electrolytes right (laughs) how far does society end up going because of that yeah yeah these are the scary existential questions i i don't really want to know the answers to no yeah thankfully i'll be long gone by then so i won't have to worry about it (laughs) it's your generation that's the problem (laughs) (laughs) generation gets blamed yeah yeah um, right. Salem, in your Reef Builders article, you say over-reliance on dry rock, excess UV sterilization, low micron filtration, and the widespread use of antibiotics have wreaked havoc on the microbial world of our corals. Them's fighting expand, words. Expand on that because I think every <laughs> hobbyist goes through these, like I'm going through right now, should I, where should I put the UV sterilizer? Should I even have a UV sterilizer? Uh, live rock or dry rock. And then you think about, okay, well, I've got nuisance algae. Am I tossing fluconazole in there? Am I, you know, if, if I've got cyano, do I throw in some chemiclean? All of these issues arise in the reefer's journey. And you're kind of saying we need to reestablish the microbiome before adding all of those other things, right? Yeah. So I feel that generally, and this is because of just, you know, development of new products in the market or miseducation or what have you, we have kind of got lost as a hobby. So think about the 90s. There was a larger access to live rock because like Fiji, and no, you could bring it in, wasn't as regulated. 
there wasn't dinoflagellants. People could run ultra low nutrient systems. They had halides. They grew SPS like crazy if they survived acclimation. So that's, I mean, that's a whole different thing. But um, I mean, people just simply didn't have as much cyano or dino as I've talked to so many old reefers. And basically anytime like someone comes back into the hobby, I've worked at a lot of shops in the past. They're like, oh, I can't get live rock anymore. And then they always run into issues. It happens every time. And many new reefers, if they have issues, they often will say, what product will fix this instead of what is the root cause of this? So while I think that UV sterilization, like this is a very good example, has a lot of use and applicability. You've got a fish only system, you're quarantining, great to use a UV sterilizer. You've got a bacteria bloom, algae bloom, you just can't fight, might have use there temporarily. But I think running at, you know 24 seven UV on a reef tank could probably cause more harm than good a lot of the times. And I feel like if you're having issues with cyanodinos, et cetera, there is most likely an imbalance on the chemistry or the biology side that is leading to those. And if you knew, or if people were, you know, more aware of what those things could be, then there could be solutions outside of throwing X thing at it, which could cause other side effects down the road. Raj, you're an old reefer. Do you uh, agree with any of that? We had cyano back then, for sure. And anybody that tells you it didn't, they're lying. Um, you know, <laughs> cyano's just been cyano's been around from day one before any of us were around. So that's just one of those things that's never going anywhere. And then you can never really quite defeat. It's always just lurking and, you know, ready to pounce on you. I'm never really overly concerned about cyano. Where, and there's multiple different ways to tackle it like you know like you're suggesting right you have the biological you have your biomes you you've got you could do chemical i'm not a fan of using the chemical or using a broad spectrum um, antibiotic like erythromycin or whatever because it, it's not targeting the root cause it's just broad spectrum and saying we're going to wipe out everything and take that along with it which does more damage than good but for me you know look you're looking at the advanced filtration here, right? So you have mechanical filtration and most of mechanical filtration is what? 200 micron, 100 micron, 50 micron. If you get finer than that, how fine are you really getting? If you go polished, like super polishing, five micron, but bacteria is what, less than a micron in size. So none mm, of that should depends. be getting filtered out. I mean, what you, what's your average? Species. Well, sure, but what's what's the average size? I mean, you're looking at a max. I would think is is one micron for most bacteria that we're going to deal with. I mean, you could have biofilms and things that are waterborne that could even be ten microns. You know, there's like it but depends on how they're growing. Are created by that bacteria. It's yeah. not a free floating biofilm, right? You have the bacteria in the water column. It creates that biofilm on a surface. Biofilms can be free floating though, if they're like, you know, there's kind of more rudimentary forms. So they'll kind of shed to form new colonies. Mm -hmm. Those could be beneficial for food sources. So think about like uh, tetraselmus, like, you know, Taras talks about that all the time. It's really cool phyto. Yeah. It'll form a biofilm, but also it has a semi-modal stage where it can actually go and detach. Then it's a great food. It's a ton of it in like a pill. We filter that out, less nutrition. Sure. If it makes it out of the tank at that stage, absolutely. But I, I just don't buy that by the time you're getting that separation, it's free floating, making out of the tank and then getting filtered out. You don't have 99% of it still in the aquarium itself. 
Yeah, maybe. But I think also just 24-7, you're running like low micron socks. There's more than just bacteria that can be beneficial. I mean, there's like different archaea that can be eaten, protozoans as well. And then even some of the larger phyto strains or dinoflagellants are above 10 microns at times. So I think that definitely filtration has a place. I think though that like, so like protein skimmers, I've heard about Kenneth from Hydrospace talk about this. And I think that he, it was either him or Eli, like Meyer from Aquabiomics, but they quantified somehow that like skimmers could take out X, X amount of bacteria per hour they're on or something. So it's not my, I guess I'm not advocating for completely eliminating filter socks or a skimmer, but rather using them selectively or at like on an interval, just not 24 seven. Interesting. And, and I know people that do that. Um, the caveat to that is what happens to your tank when you're not looking at it, right? That to me is always the case. That's when something happens. Like when does your tank have an issue? The day that you go on vacation and you're not able to handle it, right? It can <laughs> run flawless for years until the moment that you're not at home. That's when your tank is watching. You're like, all right, boys, he's out. Let's do this. And they tear it and, and the tank goes to hell. And it's that, right? You, you have an event, a spawning event or whatever, a fish dies in the middle of the night. That's where that 24 seven filtration really kicks in. That mechanical filtration that's in place, your protein skimmer that's, that's working. It's now helping. It's pulling out all of the nasties while you can't tend to it. Because without those tools, it is wholly dependent on you to go in there and fix it. Sure. Well. I don't think exactly. I don't think it's wholly dependent on you. I think the bacteria and having that microbiome can do a lot of the work. So for instance, if you had a more balanced microbiome, let's say, I think A, any of those disaster black swan events are less likely to happen through more stability in the system. B, even if they do, I think that they could help buffer those events. So like, let's say you have an ammonia spike from a fish dying, a lot more ammonia oxidizers in your tank now, probably not as much of an issue. And then even then you could have the skimmer kick on and a timer, which then resolves it. Can you tell that Raj Maybe. sells filtration equipment? <laughs> I think, I think there's a place for it. Actually, I think filters are great, but I, I I'm very much the proponent of using, you know, natural methods. So I love large refugiums. They're just magical to me in a system because of exactly what Salem is talking about. I just, I just know that relying on that a hundred percent doesn't work also like you need to yeah. have, I, I guess, you know, what, what, to an extent of what you're saying is the balance. Um, and I, and I don't know, I've seen so many systems where they've tried to go entirely holistic, right? So let's just call this approach holistic approach because you're not using your traditional medicines. So, so I'm not a big fan of over chemicalizing an aquarium, which gets a lot of flack that, you know, Hey, we have the technology, we have this chemical, why not use it? And I, I'm on your side of the fence on this, where I think there are more natural ways of doing it. But for me, fractionation is a natural, um, filtration method. Like you look in the ocean and it naturally fraction it, you know, you get that you get the skim made on the beach where that fractionation is happening. Um, mechanical filtration, you have other elements that are doing that. You've got plants and things like that, that are providing that, 
uh, all your filter feeders in the ocean that are providing that mechanical filtration. So those to me are more natural filtration methods. Um, the chemicals, not so much. So I don't know if we're that far apart in our thinking. And it's not just because I have filtration equipment, but <laughs> I, you know, it, it, the reason why I went the path I did with the equipment is because I had so much trouble with my aquarium when I was just a hobbyist. And I didn't like the stuff that was on the market and the way things were being discussed and, um, you know, just the methodologies back then. I mean, you got to remember, this was the, the days of watts per gallon when you're specking out lighting, which we know now is just totally absurd, absurd. And I knew then that was absurd because it just didn't make any sense. If you Google it right now, though, you are going to get an answer from Google on what the appropriate watts per gallon is for your aquarium. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think I definitely agree with you. Like I say, I see a place for it. So like, as you said, skim it on the beach, et cetera. There's different biological or mechanic, like the rock itself can capture debris from, you know, mm -hmm. water flow. But I think the difference here is that the natural ocean is an entire ecosystem that has a un relatively unlimited supply of the food sources. So those planktonic bacteria, et cetera, that are being produced. So while there is mechanical balancing with that, there's also closed like loop production. Whereas because we have a closed system, we have to rely on adding those things ourselves. So while having something to take things away can be very beneficial, if we're not adding things in, basically nutrient import versus export. I think that a lot of tanks are just kind of deserts from a biological and a nutrient perspective. And that overfiltration in an interim can cause that. I think there's a place for filtration, but I think that you need to balance it with nutrient import. Yeah, and I think where, like the way that I've always fed a tank is you are going, you're not going to be able to see inside the aquarium when I feed. I feed heavy, right? So I am dosing a lot of those nutrients that a lot of people don't do because they're trying to really starve out the system. So probably I've created that type of balance just because of the way that I've always fed. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, in the ocean, you have an unlimited supply of all of you know, the entire life cycle. So if we're going to try and replicate that, that seems very complicated. Like you're going to have to now put one domino in front of another and another and another and another. So you can get all of these things, which is going to be great for some company that comes out with the 50 part dosing that you've got to do <laughs> to create this biome the moon balance. Method, right? Yeah. <laughs> At least the chemical yeah. side, that's a thing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but I, I see this as kind of following down that same path because adding one thing isn't going to be the magic silver bullet, right? I'm, I keep repeating that I don't believe that there is a silver bullet that is your magic key and anybody that claims it is full of it and they're lying and don't trust them. Uh, it has to be a holistic approach, approach. Right? a holistic approach, right? It, it, you have to have multiple tools there. And once you start going down for me, the biomes and saying, well, there's 30 different elements that we need to account for. How are you going to regulate and dose those and test those? So, yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I, I can't really talk about a lot of my research, but I will say there is no silver bullet Very that I have found. <laughs> Very yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they, I mean, the, the consensus is, I mean, there's a reason why coral bleaching is such a problem. There is no solution that we have found, even with people with 
billions of dollars behind them in the most cutting edge equipment. And that is because you are attempting to manipulate a closed, like an ecosystem, you know, a minor, smaller ecosystem and a larger one. And then you throw in the chemistry side of it and it's even more complicated. So as Remy said, I think that the hobby is starting to get there. So, I mean, ICP last five, 10 years went from two week, week wait period to, as you said, three days. So having the wait period reduced and then having uh, more consumer friendly guides like the Moonshiner stuff to where here's your dailies, here's an Excel table. I think that a biological component to all of that will come sooner rather than later. And many say that they think that a lot of this is a fad, like the whole probiotic thing, but I think that's kind of where science and the industry is heading to. Like that's the final frontier of the hobby. Like ice with ICP, 90% of the problems out there on the chemical side can now be managed, but the biological side, that's the wild west. There's, yeah. I mean, there's Dr. Tim's, there's Hydrospace, there's other assorted companies that have like their one bottled bacteria, not really much out there. Yeah. And it's a generic true. one, like blend, right? So yeah. that's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're trying to create balance, that's not going to be, that's not going to be the answer. That That's one of the things that really just, like, I feel like there needs to be a very large education component, which is why I was really happy to be a part of the Reef Builders team. Because many people I'll see, it's like, oh, in docipro tank, you know, docipro in tank, here's the dosage, do it for one hour and then uh, add Microbacter 7. It's like, that, <laughs> A, you don't even know what species that is. B, can it replicate in salt water? C, what did you just kill that was very integral long term that you now cannot replace? So it's the same thing we talked about. You can remove, but there is no addition right now. And that's a big problem. I mean, there's maybe addition in live rock and sand, but... I mean, that's, you got the Caribbean, you've got the Aussie stuff. There's just not as many selections. And there is regional variability in some of those bacterial families. I mean, endo rock, I mean, unless you're importing, getting pucks from a, a wholesaler that then doesn't use antibiotics, which is also very rare now. I mean, almost everyone bringing stuff in does prophylactic dips. So half the coral now entering the market is already has this small of a microbiome compared to this. So how do we add those species back in? not a good solution right now, which is scary. I mean, how many, how many, I'm sure it's in the millions of bacteria strains that you'd have to even go through to even get close to replicating what's in the ocean. Right. So how will we ever know what those additions can be or what we could start dosing into our tanks? Or is it just going to kind of be a blind, you know, tossing some microbacter in or whatever it is and just, crossing our fingers. So I think that like a lot of researchers right now, when they approach the, like what bacteria are integral to the holobiont to maintain its function, they're looking more at um, metabolomics, which is what a lot of my research is. So this is the study of what metabolites are being produced by the system. So you can track over time. If you have X coral, selectively take out bacterial families or add them in, you can then see how the chemical basically signals or chemical products change in terms of what that coral is consuming and producing. So combining all of those things, their understanding of what proteins are activated during uh, certain times. So let's say we've got an Acropora. We have uh, bacteria X, which is really good at eating this one chemical product that is produced by a heat shock protein. Heat shock proteins are going to be activated during a stress event, which could lead to bleaching, like higher uh, water temperatures. So maybe that uh, excess, uh, basically chemical being produced with those heat shock proteins and high doses would kill the coral. 
So that means if you don't have that bacteria eating that waste, the coral dies. So there's, that's what a lot of the studies are like nowadays is it's looking at a single genera of bacteria and saying, what role does this play in terms of the overall biochemistry of this animal? And if we take it out, can the coral live? So I think the way that science is heading now, it's getting more selective at saying these are the good guys and here's the ones that really matter. And maybe all these other people here are just kind of noise. It's finding those needles in the haystack and getting a more selective approach for conservation. Gotcha. Okay. So my next question is, and this is, this is off the cuff. I don't know. Is an Acropora using different bacteria than scolemia or, you know, an LPS or a Kenya tree or any of like, they all have their own specific recipe of bacteria that they're using. So now if you've got an acro, it needs this. If you've got a scolemia, it needs this. Is that kind of how that goes? Or is it pretty broad throughout? I guess, is it pretty, is it more generic than we think? So yes and no. So in terms of selective partners, you can have an acropora tenuous in Tonga, and you can have a tenuous in Indonesia, and they have a completely different holobiont profile. And then you can have a mili right next door to a tenuous, also different. So even down to the you know subspecies, this is a completely you know different. They have very specific associations that we don't like. Even like the most cutting edge papers stuff published a week ago, they're like, "Huh, what's this one do?" <laughs> it's pretty much what it is. Now there's also a lot of generalists though, and there's also a lot of convergent evolution. So if you like convergent evolution, if you think about um, how similar environmental niches have been filled in different continents just by things evolving. So like butterflies have evolved independently on every continent. A pollinator has arose on every continent, even if there's not the same species. So something can evolve to take advantage of that food supply. Same thing with bacteria. There might be different species of bacteria and different corals in different parts of the world, but generally there are bacteria that perform the same jobs of this one eats this waste product, this one eats this chemical signal, this one is a pathogen pretty much universally. So the hope would be finding strains that would be able to perform that general task rather than the more specific ones. And it's not even so much as if the coral could uptake X bacteria and incorporate it into its holobiont when considering a closed loop ecosystem like an aquarium, it's just saying, Coral produces X waste product that can implicate pathogenic event. We now have bacteria Y that eats that. Huh. Is there a, have you been able to identify any strains that are like, that are common, that are present in most or majority or all of the corals? Something pretty basic maybe. So. Or are they all just different? So yeah, like I said, there's a lot of similarities. So Rhodobacter ACA is a very big family. So if you're familiar with hydrospace, all of the uh, like rhodomonas and stuff they have are rhodopseudomonas, that's in that family. So a lot of the commonalities are bacteria that can fix nitrogen, which is very important for the zooxanthellae. Like zooxanthellae can't take up nitrogen. I mean, most coral, like, all coral cannot uptake nitrogen. They use ammonia as a nitrogen source. So to have a nitrogen fixing bacteria live inside of them that benefits every other bacteria there because now they have a nitrogen source and it benefits the coral and it benefits the zooxanthellae. So it's like, I think it's, I mean, it depends on the coral, but it's like 50 to 80% of most of the like bacteria associated coral are rhodobacter ACA. So that's why I like hydrospace. I mean, that's, that's a pretty cool product to me. That's at least covering a lot of the baselines there. Um, 
of it, it function wise, you know, of getting yeah. something in the tank that could benefit corals that the vast majority of corals do indeed benefit from. Yeah. He was at Reefstock, uh, Denver. I got a chance to talk with him. Uh, super smart guy. And it's gotta be so hard for you guys kind of more on the science side. I know you're a hobbyist as well, but to take the snake oil crap from people who are just like, how could you know, how would you ever know what a, what a coral needs, you know, from a bacteria standpoint, cause there's so much out there. How, how could you know, how could you generalize something like that and then sell the product to the open market? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, the, the answer to that would just be, you don't have to have the specific bacteria. You just need the bacteria for the job. And if you identify what job needs to be done, you can have a bacteria, you know, fit that need. So a good example of this is the majority of nitrifying bacteria on the market. Like, um, I think like Dr. Tim, you know, he did his doctorate or like his dissertation on taxonomizing and describing actual marine nitrifiers. So he was like, okay, every single product out here is just wastewater bacteria. It's a freshwater strain that can't even reproduce in saltwater. Then he made one and only patented it, made a company. And now he was one of the first people to actually have a true <clears throat> marine strain of nitrifying bacteria on the market. So, I mean, that's what a lot of it is. A lot of the bacteria on the market, because companies don't disclose what they have, who knows what it is, but at least hydrospace is open and saying, hey, <clears throat> this strain can't reproduce in salt water, but it does the same function as the ones that do. And we're working on this strain that does reproduce in salt water. Yeah. Gosh, that's so, this is like so freaking interesting. It's so deep in the weeds and I knew we were going to go down this path. <laughs> and I hope that if you're listening right now, you're still with us. Um, <laughs> but in my mind, I just go straight to like this whole, like if we have the complete recipe for, you know, Acropora in the tank, whether that be Millie or Tenuous or whatever it is, uh, whatever they taxonomists want to reclassify it as, if we have the full recipe for whatever that is, how, how these corals can just thrive with us knowing all of that information. And I think without mm -hmm. the testing of that and the, and the, what you're doing in school and, and the research that's being done around bacteria, like we'll never know. So it might, might feel snake oily right now, but it's all just, it's research that's being done to to make this all better, you know, to, to help and our corals and people thrive in our should tanks. question the products and they should ask all those questions because like you said, there is plenty of snake oil out in the market and there always has been. And if yeah. people just blindly accept it, they're going to reject the science at some point because they're gonna be like, you know what? All this stuff is garbage. I've heard this before. So questioning it is definitely the right thing to do. And it's what a scientist needs anyway. Uh, I'm kind of, excited about a prospect of a bottle, right? You have a bottle and say, this is a biome for this collection of corals. And you can list all of the corals that are going to thrive under that. So you could have your tank and say, okay, this is the list of corals that are going to thrive in my tank. And you get that particular bottle, dose the tank, it creates or introduces that, uh, all that bacteria that you're going to need. And you could it's almost like a silver bullet, right? It, it could be really, really cool to have that type of setup. And then you're going to have somebody like me that's not super patient and wants something outside <laughs> of that list, introduce it, totally screw it up, crash my tank, and then blame you for it. So expect that call. <laughs>
But yeah, no, I think in the next 10 years, that will be something we see in the hobby. I think for now, though, because there is not that, I think that live sand and live rock is our best solution, unfortunately. Because, you know, if you already have a fully escaped tank, I mean, I guess you got the sump, but kind of sucks to add that much rock. Because, I mean, you probably would need to get quite a bit. Plus, no one knows how much dies in transit, how much is on Aussie, how much is on Caribbean. Is there a difference between the two? Is there how much, like, how much on live sand? Is, um, like, the only thing I've really seen that's been done so far is BRS did the whole, like, microbiome cycling series. And they determined that Carib Sea Ocean Direct had the most diverse microbiome and cycled a tank the fastest. That's, like, all there is. So, okay, if you can't get live sand, maybe use the Carib Sea Ocean Direct stuff. Like, but how <laughs> very much incomplete. Live, sand and live rock. <laughs> how much live sand and live rock do you really need, though? Because essentially all you have to do is seed the aquarium, right? It's going to proliferate in there. Maybe, right? So, I mean, if you have a new tank, yeah. But if you have an existing tank with an existing microbiome, and a lot of these bacteria are heterotrophs, or there's other things besides bacteria that eat the bacteria, like protozoans, you don't even know your yeah. population of those because aquabiomics is a very limited test on that. That's a whole other can of worms is every other species that's in the microbiome. So, I mean, it do, we don't know. That's the thing. There's not enough data. So I would say sure. add as much as you can. <laughs> yeah. Dump some bleach in it and you're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> so what you say, so, so going back to the live sand, live rock, because I'm in this right now. Uh, and obviously mine came from the Caribbean and I know that, uh, as opposed to like the Carib sea sand, would it be more beneficial to get it directly from, uh, someone that's farming it from the ocean or getting it from the ocean, harvesting it from the ocean, whatever word you want to use there. So there's no data to support any of these claims I'm going to have, but just using kind of like logic, like in, in terms of like how I'm conceptualizing this. If you were to get, like, I think, like, Tampa Bay Aquatics is, like, one of the large, like, live sand suppliers. They have, like, a next day option where you get it wet. So, thinking, it's like, okay, probably there's going to be more colony forming units and more diversity in those colony forming units. And that sand that just came from the ocean, presumably within the week, compared to Carib Sea Ocean Direct, which has been on a shelf for X amount of time. Now, while bacteria are very, like, incredibly hardy, they can form endospores, they can, I mean, there's, like, bacteria that live in the permafrost in Siberia that are coming alive after millions of years. I mean, they can, they're incredibly resilient organisms, but some are very, very finicky, hardest to grow stuff of all time. So there's a temperature fluctuation, salinity fluctuation, they run out of a very specific metabolite they use to live off of. There's probably overall less biodiversity in that bag of sand compared to direct from the ocean. How much? Don't know. Okay, so I killed it all. I, was... <laughs> <laughs> I did get it next in, day, in though. Like, I got it from cargo, so I, I went over there and I picked it all up, and you know, it came on a plane, and you know, it wasn't mailed. Uh, so I guess with a timeliness aspect of this, it got into the tank pretty quickly. So yeah, no, I, I think you're. Saved, I think you're fine. I think you're good. Saved a bunch of it. <laughs> yeah, the only stuff that survived is the reef scabies. Yes, yes. You're, You're going to have Aptasia spores. You'll see them soon. Yep. Yeah. They just got some stripies <laughs> in at Top Shelf. Maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll hit them up. <laughs> That'd be a cool fish. Those are cool fish. Yeah, underrated. Yeah. yeah they're, and, and you don't really see them too much, I, I feel like, in the, in the U.S. Um, uh, our, our good friend Lauren from Simple Aquariums has just 
like four or five stripies in her tank and you know they're pretty they're pretty simple looking fish but they do the damage on the aptasia so that's a little 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 something for you if you're in the orlando area i don't know how long those last when they get them in but i don't know how much they cost i think they were like <laughs> i think they were like maybe 130 on live aquaria when i just randomly searched them but they were out of stock there so um i do want to talk about one more thing before we let you go and that is because we talked about fuges earlier kind of touched on it a little bit but i want to get into something we talked about with um with uh reef bum and that is cryptic sumps because he's got one and he set it up and from your perspective on a uh, first explain what a cryptic sump is if you don't know and then what are some of the benefits that you've seen with having those on a tank yeah so cryptic sump that's some og steven tyree stuff so yeah, Stephen Tyree, he's been around for a, a while now, and he advocated back in the day, I do not need a skimmer, I do not need anything, just give me a very big tank, and I will fill it with rock, and have no light, and a lot of sponges and tunicates will grow, and that's my filtration. And that's a cryptic sump. So, I mean, there's been a kind of a resurgence now, as people have seen that they have issues, etc. I mean, people are kind of just trying anything to fix problems nowadays, which is good, innovation's good. So yeah, Reef Bum plumbed one in to his tank and he actually charted aquabiomics data over time. He had befores and afters and it was pretty big increase in diversity. So I made my new system. It's about three to 400 gallons, give or take. I need to actually like calculate how high the water is in the sump and stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to have a cryptic sump on this. So I plumbed this like really ratchety looking 50 gallon like drum into it and <laughs> I made it work. So I've got a zone that's got a high turnover rate, but low overall flow and it's completely dark. And I threw a ton of media in there and um, yeah, I don't really run much mechanical filtration. I'll throw in some filter floss every once in a while and uh, run the skimmer only really like for pH with the CO2 scrubber. It's just a glorified air pump at this point. So I don't really pull much skim it. I haven't done aqua, like say I'm in the process of doing a lot of aquabiomic stuff, which should help with that some, but I have definitely noticed uh, just kind of cleaner overall water. And this tank has been much more stable than my other systems. That could be to water volume or many other variables. Say it's all anecdotal, but there's at least reef bumps data that's like, hey, microbiome change. Yeah. Enough for me to plumb one in. <laughs> What's your vessel? How long has your tank been up? Uh, it's pretty new. Um, so, I mean, that was like December. I got it wet. So eight, nine, 10 months now. Yeah, it's October. Oh, wow. Almost a year. Wow. That is crazy. <laughs> Didn't realize it was October. Yeah. So about a year now. Newer system. What's the uh, vessel for the cryptic sump? What are you keeping that in? So I took and went and bought a 50 gallon drum that used to hold medicine, I guess, off of Craigslist because it was like $10. And then I cleaned it out and then I put some bulkheads in it and I have a main drain. So it kind of tees off. One part goes down to the main sump, other part partitions to the cryptic sump because something like I, another place I worked, we had a huge like Rubbermaid tub as a cryptic sump on a huge four by eight tank. There was a farm tank. And one of the issues we had over time after about two years, there was very, very high um, nutrients that started to accumulate, most likely from like a detritus buildup. So we didn't have like a deep sand bed on the tank, like how you would, like Tyree would have probably ran one to where you could have got some like of the bacteria that would complete the nitrogen cycle and convert nitrates to nitrogen gas. Like it was 
we just threw a ton of ton of rock in a Rubbermaid tub. And so, yeah, my thought was, okay, I'm not going to have a deep Santa bed either, probably, because I don't really have room for one. So I'm going to divert the flow to where a lot of the detritus can probably be siphoned out. I don't have to deal with that problem later on. I'm going to love if that 55 gallon drum was used to hold like antibiotics. Yes. And it's now <laughs> just leeching into your tank. Uh, <laughs> that same thought. It was a whole thing of Cipro. That's what it was. <laughs> that would be very ironic. That, that would, Fantastic. That would be karma for like Facebook dog fights and stuff, probably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, it probably <laughs> did. <laughs> Salem, the old amoxicillin bin. He's got it. <laughs> um, Oxalinic acid is in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was gonna, I was gonna ask if you'd ever plumbed a cryptic sump, Raj. If, you, if it's if it's an older school thing, is that anything that you'd ever experimented? Yeah, with? that was that was pretty popular back in the day, um, and it was really for filter feeders. I mean, that's what you were cultivating there. And so it was just getting that natural biological or mechanical filtration going with that cryptic zone. Um, you know, I, I, I did it on my big reef and I mean, I had so much going on with it. It's tough to really tell what had an effect and what didn't because I was throwing every tool I could think of at it. And that was, always been kind of my motto is that one thing's not going to do it. So I need to use multiple tools to, to address whatever is going to come up, but yeah, totally had that. And yeah. I mean, I even had Aptasia in there that there was no Aptasia in the rest <laughs> of the tank, but it was in my cryptic zone. Cause there was nothing in there to, to eat it. And um, a whole bunch of uh, tunicates and sponges and all kinds of life that was in that cryptic zone, but no media per se. So no live rock or anything like that, but yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, it's, it's funny. We had a, we had a commenter and I don't know if this was on YouTube or if it was on Facebook, but it was an OG reefer. And he said, I just love seeing the cycle of old, uh, old trends come back (laughs) around every, you know, five to 10 years. There's this new thing, the new thing that we've been doing for years. Um, somebody gave me crap for, uh, tubbing live sand in my sump and <laughs> not actually utilizing it in the display. But, um, I wanted to go bare bottom. So I you put live sand there. It's not okay. going to be bare bottom yeah. anymore. So that's what I've got too. Uh, I got a tub. Yeah. There you, there go. you go. See Sailor farming too. coral. It's hard to have high flow in a sand bed. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, what, anything else you want to talk about tonight before we before we get up? I I want to have you back on for sure. I think it'd be fun to have you as a regular guest on the podcast just to kind of see, you know, as research is concluded and you can talk about it. I think that'd be fun to follow up and see, you know, Definitely. how things are going and what you find. There's a lot to talk about, and there's a lot I've found. I will say that <laughs> some very interesting things, but. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think I want to leave off with just saying that while we talked about mainly bacteria today, there is a whole world under the microscope. And there's a lot more than just, you know, bacteria. I mean, like like I said, there's even beneficial viruses and things. So even if there were to be, like, this is hopeful, but also like pessimistic, I suppose. Like, even if there were to be this silver bullet of add-in bacteria, I think that that would take the hobby a very long ways. But I think eventually we would need full microbiome management. So talking about like, okay, what now? Now, cause like, let's say like we eradicate 
like bacterial problems by having a more balanced ecosystem, what issues would we run into then? Probably viral infections at that point. Or like even corals can get cancer. I mean, OG bounce, but like a bad way, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I think that there's a lot of hope for the hobby to evolve as the biotechnology field evolves. But I think with new advances, new issues will come. But that's not a reason to get discouraged because technology will probably resolve those too. Progress is trucking on. <laughs> I'm going to counter that with uh, nature always finds a way. Okay. And, yeah. Okay. There you go. I'm going to counter that with, are we just a, a part of a cell of a larger human or a larger <laughs> being? There you go. When you look under the microscope, do you see galaxies? Do you see us? <laughs> <laughs> All these guys are trying to keep coral alive. It's so weird. It's crazy, yeah. Mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Everybody knows <laughs> Well, uh, Salem, I want to say thank you for coming on, and we hope to have you on again. I think that uh, if there is one thing that you've done, it's, it's, it's you know, give, give this hobby some, some good youth, scholarly energy and i appreciate that um wasn't sure how this was gonna go we'd never met before like formally um yeah. so i appreciate uh i appreciate you taking the time on a friday night i know as a college kid you're probably out just raging on friday nights right party afterwards what i gotta say it's still early it's still <laughs> yeah. early it still is early we get ready at 10 p.m dude what are you talking about pre-game hasn't started uh, i got time yep. exactly exactly well, I want to thank Salem for joining us on the podcast today. If you've got any questions for him, I'm sure there's a lot, uh, or Raj or myself, go ahead and leave those in the comments section below. And if you're listening to the audio-only version, find Reef Builders on all the socials. I want to thank ICP Analysis for being a sponsor of the podcast. If you need anything from them, any ICP tests, and any consultation from Salem, you can go to icpanalysis.com. Thanks, guys, and we'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. See you.